Well, this morning we return to our study of the Gospel of Matthew. If you have your copy of Scripture, please open to Matthew. And really, this is a new section in Matthew. If you were to examine the structure of this Gospel, you would see that the writer recounts the life and ministry of Jesus both chronologically and thematically. That is, Matthew gives us a window into Jesus' life from his birth to his ministry, to his death, to resurrection, even to post-resurrection. And we understand that none of the gospel writers can give us really a a comprehensive history of Jesus' life. Even John, at the end of his gospel, writes this, There were many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, even the world itself could not contain the books which were written. John 21-25. And so there is so much that encapsulates the life and ministry and teaching of Jesus Uh, All the books in the world, John says, could not contain all the things that he has said and done. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are forced to make editorial decisions about what to include in their respective Gospels. But if you notice, all of them contain many of the same components. Certainly Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke, we call them synoptic Gospels. Synoptic, it's the same view. They have a very similar view together of all the different events of Jesus' life and ministry. And then John comes along toward the end of the whole process and really kind of fills in many of the gaps. But all four Gospels expound on Jesus' life and teaching. They include his miracles, his arrest, his trial, death, burial, and resurrection. And when it comes to Jesus' life and teaching, the gospel writers try to include examples uh, that will best exemplify the glory of Christ uh, to their uh, specified audience. And each of the writers really has a different audience in mind. Again, if you were to examine this, if you were to look at Matthew, Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and he focuses on Jesus being the king of Israel, and as really as the well, uh, the long-awaited Messiah. That's his focus, as Jesus as their Messiah. Whereas Mark is writing primarily to uh, Roman Gentiles, he focuses on Christ as servant, and so you see a lot of Jesus' works in Mark's gospel. Luke is writing to all the Gentiles and focuses on the notion of Jesus coming from God as man. So he focuses mostly, or I shouldn't say mostly, but largely on the humanity of Jesus, the Son of Man who offers salvation to the whole world, both Jew and Gentile. And then John really is writing to Hellenistic Jews or Greeks, and he focuses apologetically on Jesus as God, and John explores heavily uh, the themes of believing in Jesus for eternal life. And so, again, each, each is writing with a specific uh, motive, and with that said, we want to go back and look at Matthew, the fact that he's writing to the Jews to convince them that Jesus is their long-awaited Messiah. He is the, the Christ And all of his inclusions, Matthew's inclusions, I should say, are designed to amplify that one key point. And so, starting in Matthew chapter 8, chapter 8, continuing into chapter 9, Jesus is presented to Israel as their healer, as the healer of Israel. And it's these chapters that we see his awesome power put on display. And so, again, we're in Matthew chapter 8, if you haven't yet turned there. Matthew 8 and 9 really showcase uh, Jesus' miraculous healings, the ministry of his healing, uh, and really it's the only one of its kind. In fact, the last time that there was a healing ministry in Israel 
was during the time of Elijah and Elisha in the 9th century BC. But even their ministries were muted in comparison to Jesus. Their, miracula- their, their, excuse me, their miracles were highly specified. Jesus heals almost indiscriminately. Their miracles were often accompanied uh, by elaborate uh, sort of acts and rituals and a lot of entreaty, entreating the Lord repeatedly. I mean, even just you think about uh, Naaman going under the ministry of Elisha and dipping into the water seven times, a very elaborate uh, process for him to be healed, whereas Jesus and his healing ministry, he heals instantly. The ministries of Elijah and Elisha ultimately point to the power of God, but Jesus' ministry points to the truth that he possessed all power as God. Very different focus in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. But the transition really toward the healing ministry of Jesus that begins in Matthew 8, this happens immediately after he finishes the Sermon on the Mount. And so look at Matthew chapter 8 with me, verses 1 through 4 today. We read this, when Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one. But go, show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Because of the brevity of this passage, only four verses, I'm not going to give you really an outline, but I will say that uh, each verse is really its own main point. And so we're going to work systematically through each of these verses, and I I think you're going to see what's going to happen here. But verse 1 really sets the stage for what's about to take place. We read that this event occurs when Jesus comes down from the mountain. We have to remind ourselves, what was he doing on that mountain? Well, like I said, I think I said this last week or two weeks ago or three weeks ago, Uh, We spent quite a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount, and so if you've been with us for any length of time, uh, you went through that, uh, we all went through this together to to examine this this greatest sermon in history, Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is expounding on a vision for the members of his kingdom. To be clear, he never says that living a righteous life will get you into heaven, but it becomes very clear from his sermon that as those who are destined for heaven because of their faith in Jesus, they're the ones that seek after righteousness. And so that sermon is delivered to believers who are seeking uh, to see his kingdom uh, brought to bear. But what brings us to heaven? He says we must enter by the narrow gate. We must build our lives on the rock. We must become obedient to God. And what does this all point to? It points to the fact that a person who has put his faith or her faith squarely on Jesus Christ, they are the ones who receive heaven because their faith is in Christ alone. And people had never heard such a thing before. They never heard this before. Go back up the page to verse 28 of chapter 7. Just a few verses up the page. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. They had never heard this before. Not even just the words he said. 
and his, his teaching on the topic, but the way he was teaching, they had just never heard this from any of their scribes, any of the Pharisees. No prophet had ever come, had spoken this way. Jesus stands alone in a class all by himself in this way to communicate to his people. And so after this remarkable sermon, it leaves them stunned and in awe. We looked at, the, at some word studies last time, and it's as if they were struck. They were so uh, mortified just by this teaching, surprised and shocked by this teaching. And it's from that point he comes down the mountain, and we begin in verse 1 here. And as he's coming down the mountain, verse 1 says that great crowds followed him. Great crowds followed him. Why were they following him? Why were they following him? Well, because they wanted to know what he was going to say next, and they wanted to also know what he was going to do next. Again, they never heard anything like this before. They'd never seen anything like this before. Who is this person, and what is he doing, and what is he going to do next? They didn't want to miss a beat. And no sooner does he come down from the mountain, the crowds are with him, that he is approached by a leper. Now, to understand why this is such a big deal, we have to explore what the Bible teaches about uncleanness and specifically things like leprosy. And this is where, really, an understanding of the book of Leviticus is helpful to us. I think a lot of times when we read through our Bible and we get to Leviticus in our reading plan, it's very easy. I've talked about this and written about this before, but we start in Genesis with the best of intentions. We kind of power through Exodus, and then we hit Leviticus, and we say, what did I get myself into? Leviticus is not the kind of book that you run headlong into and get excited about because it just seems like a whole bunch of laws. And we struggle to understand the significance of books like Leviticus. But truthfully, this book is extremely important, extremely important to understand what Jesus is doing and furthermore, why he's doing it. So actually turn back in your Bible to Leviticus chapter 13. Hopefully the pages aren't so stuck together that they're crisp, but hopefully you've been here before. Leviticus chapter 13. Now, contrary to what you might believe, Leviticus is not simply a book full of random laws. Rather, it is a collection of of these teachings of laws that exist for a very specific purpose. What is the purpose of Leviticus? I've been asked this question before. What is the reason? Why is this book in our Bible? What is the purpose of Leviticus? Here is the answer. This book exists to teach God's people about holiness. This is all about holiness. And even the title Leviticus is really the English rendering of what we would understand the phrase to be pertaining to the Levites. And the Levites were the tribe designated by God to handle all things pertaining to laws and practices of Israel, both religious and civil. So they were, uh, they were the doctors and the physicians, they were the lawyers, they were the teachers, they were the administrators. So all of the, the nuts and bolts of what it means to be Jewish and live in a Jewish nation, that work belongs to the tribe of Levi. And again, they were in charge of administering and managing the law that was given to Moses and subsequently given to God's people. Again, Leviticus teaches us about holiness, and the law contained in this teaches us about sin and sacrifice. And here's the big idea. And again, if you were to do this study on your own, I think you would see these themes very, uh, very strongly. But let me just summarize for you. When you study Leviticus and you study all the laws and all the prescriptions and everything, you begin to see that everything laid out in Leviticus is either holy or common. 
holy or common, and also either clean or unclean. You're going to see those themes pervasively throughout the whole book. And with the notion of holy, really, this means set apart or consecrated to God. So you would take something and you would set it apart over here and say, this thing now belongs to God. I'm not going to use it for a common purpose. I'm going to use it for God's purpose. And therefore, this thing becomes now sanctified and consecrated to God and set apart and is as holy unto the Lord. Sin, however, and infirmity profane and pollute things until they become unclean or defiled. And so you see those themes of something becoming either sinful or something, someone that is sick, and they become unclean or defiled in the eyes of God. However, through prescribed sacrifice, the thing can become cleansed and purified. And so you see, laid out in this book, you see this journey from things that are holy and clean, and they become contaminated and unclean and profane, but then sacrifice brings them back, and they can become then holy again. And so there's this process back and forth of cleansing, and again, it is designed to teach the people of God about this idea of holiness, Now, we know that from New Testament eyes, that what the Jews understood physically, we now understand spiritually. And we also know from Hebrews, if you read Leviticus and Hebrews together, you're going to see they go along pretty good. If you have a a good understanding of Leviticus, then Hebrews really comes alive uh, for you. But we're going to talk more about this spiritual, physical thing in a bit here. But of all the unclean and defiled things in Israel, there was nothing more detestable than the disease of leprosy. To be fair, scholars now believe that this term leprosy in the Bible may have been really a broader term referring to any kind of serious skin condition. So there could be a number of things that would kind of fall under the category of leprosy. But we also understand specific ailments known as leprosy. For example, in our day, this is called Hansen's disease. I made the grave mistake of looking this up this week and Googling this disease. Uh, don't do that unless you have not had something to eat uh, for the day. Uh, but looking up this disease and seeing all that it entails, essentially it's a skin infection that is caused by a slow-growing bacteria known as Mycobacterium leprae. Thankfully, there are only about 20,000 cases a year worldwide, and it is a curable disease today by modern medicine. But in the first century, however, uh, there was no cure for this disease, and so the condition was often uh, left to be worsened until the person eventually died. And what this infection did was kill the nerve endings under the skin So that if an injury or a lesion or some kind of infection got in, it would become so infected and destroy the area and you would have no sense of feeling. So it would would get worse beyond beyond your recognition. For the most part, you know, if something happens to your body now and it gets really bad, if it gets infected, you feel the pain. You go to the doctor and you can kind of deal with the level of pain. But if you have no pain, you don't realize how bad it is. And next thing you know, it's just taking over your body. Imagine having an infection that goes so out of control, there's no pain to warn you of the danger, and once the disease is worsened, the infected body part begins to rot and wither away. This is the the heinousness of leprosy. It's just a terrible, terrible illness. And a person with an advanced case of leprosy was really not a pretty sight. They were not pleasant to look at. However, if you found a discolored spot on your body, if you caught it, 
on your body and you suspected it was leprosy, then the Bible teaches, and this is where Leviticus 13 comes in, these are prescriptions. You are commanded by God to then go and present yourself to the priests and they would then give you an examination. They would check you out. And they would, all of Leviticus 13 really chronicles the various tests they would perform to diagnose this condition. First, they would examine your skin. If you look at verses 2 through 8, as well as verses 9 through 17. This is all pertaining to examining your skin, as it were. Then they would examine uh, your skin by looking at any scars. They would look at the scars on your body, verses 18 to 23. Next, they would examine any burns on your body, because again, they're looking for infection. So verses 24 to 28, that's when they're examining burns. And then they would check your beard, if you had a beard, and scalp, verses 29 to 37. And then they would look at any exposed bald points on your, on your head, and they would check that, verses 40 to 44. And if, after all these tests, they discovered that you did indeed have leprosy, then they're instructed... If you look at chapter 13, verses 45 and 46, he says, As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn, the hair of his head shall be uncovered, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. This is a prescription for those who indeed have this terrible illness. And so they would strip you down, they would kick you out, and they would ostracize you outside the camp. You might ask the question, well, why would you do that? Why would you kick a sick person out of the camp? Well, because they don't want to pollute and expose the population to this kind of illness. So you were physically and medically unclean as well as ceremonially unclean as well. Furthermore, even the sickness itself, they believed, uh, was uh, an indication and proof that God had cursed you. And so they saw sickness and God's curse as being synonymous in many cases. And so nobody wanted to be a party to somebody who had been cursed by God. And so they were ostracized and kicked out of the camp until they could be restored, until they could be healed. And so therefore there were communities of lepers living in exile outside the city. Now, if the leper was cured, there was a way for them to come back to the priest. So if you had somehow been cured, you would come back. You'd present yourself for examination. And the condition, if it was gone, uh, then you would be cleansed. And you would also go through the whole process. And that's what Leviticus 14 is all about. So 13 is about dealing with and diagnosing the illness. Verse 4, or chapter 14, is about what happens after the fact. And so they would examine you, and if they found that you were well again, and this condition was gone, you were pronounced clean by the priest, and he would uh, pronounce you clean in front of all the people, and you could now officially re-enter the society. So they would make a a public declaration, so-and-so is now clean, they're no longer a threat to the general population, and so we're going to bring them back in and restore them as clean, and now they can come back and live with us, but not before. They had to go before the priest first. However, Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 8, the leper doesn't go to the priest. Instead, he comes to Jesus. Go back to Matthew 8. This leper comes out of the woodwork, really. He 
comes from wherever he was living before, outside the city. He ventures his way into the city. He finds Jesus. He sees what all the commotion's about. He knows that Jesus is there. He goes to Jesus. He's coming down from the mountain. He weaves his way through this large crowd of people, and he approaches Jesus. Now, I have to tell you, the gasps and the cries from the crowd must have been deafening. To see this man in an advanced stage of leprosy, weaving his way through the crowd, they would have been disheveled. That's an understatement. But he doesn't care. He needs to get to Jesus. And he approaches Jesus. Matthew records that when he gets there, he bows down before him. Now Mark records the exact same incident in Mark chapter 1, verse 40, that this man was also beseeching him and falling down on his knees. So he falls down on his knees and he begins to plead with Jesus. He bows low, as low as he can go. Luke 5.12 also records this account. says he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. How did this man know that Jesus could heal him? That's a pretty big gamble to leave your commune, if you will, and weave your way in the midst of all the cries and people spitting on you and getting angry at you and all that stuff. How did, they, how did he know that Jesus could heal him? Well, way back in Matthew 4, 24, we read that Jesus, the news of Jesus' miraculous ministry had spread all over Galilee, even as far as Syria. So the entire country, the entire region knew about his ministry and news would have spread like wildfire that there was a man in Israel who could heal any illness. And wouldn't you know, you better believe that that news reached these leper communities who were living in exile. They would have heard this news and they would have said something like, did you hear that there's a man who can heal us and cleanse all of us so that we can go back home to be with our families? Can you imagine fathers who get this illness and have to leave their wife and kids Can you imagine a mother who gets leprosy and has to leave her crying children to go live in the desert with other lepers? Can you imagine children who get this and have to be led out into the camp by their parents and not knowing why they can't come home? This is the separation that this illness has caused, this division. And so this man, when he hears the news, he breaks every single Levitical ordinance. He violates every social order because he knows that Jesus can heal him. And if Jesus doesn't heal him, he's as good as dead. And so he comes and he he throws himself at Jesus' feet and he begins to beg him and plead and beseech, Lord, if you are willing, You can make me clean. Now, I don't know how good this man's theology was, but he at least knew enough to know that Jesus was not only powerful enough to heal his disease, but also render him fully cleansed. Again, Levitical language here. Not just healed and better, but cleansed. Okay, there's another step beyond of cleansing. And I want you to notice a couple things about this man's profession. The first thing he says is, Lord. This is a title of respect and reverence. And while it doesn't seem like he understands that Jesus is the Lord in terms of God, he certainly has respect and reverence for him nonetheless. 
And then he says, if you are willing. This is humble submission. Humble submission. There's no pomp. He doesn't come to him like the rich young ruler and say, oh, good teacher. What must I do? All that stuff. He doesn't do that. He knows exactly who Jesus is. And he says, if you're you're willing, there's no reasoning. There's no arguing. There's no sense of entitlement. He doesn't come and say, look, I heard there's free miracles here. He comes and he bows down. He says, if you're willing to do this. All we have here is a desperate man with his disfigured face buried in the dust at Jesus' feet. And then he ekes out these words, you can make me clean. That's pure, unwavering, determined faith. You, Jesus, can ability make Power, me, this lowly leper, clean, restored, and acceptable again. Matthew doesn't record Jesus' immediate reaction, but I'll tell you, Mark does. Mark says what Jesus is motivated by. Mark 141, and moved with compassion. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Moved with compassion. Jesus never looked on a hurting person with disdain. Now he saw this man in his awful, awful condition. And his heart just broke for him. And he was moved in such a way. After all, he told the Pharisees in Mark 2.17, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And he says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And again, you have to see, in the Jewish mind, the sickness and the infirmity is linked to their condition. Now, later on, Jesus debunks that. John chapter 9, for example, when the disciples see the man born blind, they said, Lord, what, is this, what did this man do or what did his parents do that he would become blind? And Jesus says, nothing. They didn't do anything wrong, but rather that the works of God might be uh, displayed in him. So Jesus debunks this sort of your sin caused the infirmity. But, but here, the infirmity, all infirmity, all sickness, all death is ultimately caused by the fall. All of the world is ripped apart and shredded, even now, because of the fall and the entrance of sin into the world. Romans 5 talks about this. But Jesus sees this man, this outcast, this lowly, beggarly man. He doesn't redeem him simply to social status. He comes to redeem to eternal life. Yet here, yet here, this man... The sick and dying leper, Jesus is moved with earthly compassion. I think there's something else going on in this man's heart beyond just by the nature of his confession. But what's on the text here, what's on the page here, is that Jesus is moved with a a timely compassion in the moment, and he desires to see this man made well. It's in Jesus' prerogative to not heal someone if he doesn't want to, but we never read about that. And every single passage about healing, Jesus goes in no matter where he is. 
He's healing almost indiscriminately, even healing people who would turn on their heel and leave and not even thank him for doing so. But then Jesus does the unthinkable. And you have to see the weight and the magnanimity of this. The text says he stretched out his hand and touched him. He touched him. And the crowd would have seen this and they would have gasped and they would have screamed, don't touch the leper. That's Leviticus 101. Don't touch him. Because if you do, you then will be unclean. Because he was commanded at the beginning to walk around and say, unclean, unclean, just in case someone was walking by and they didn't see him in the periphery of their vision, they would know because he would say, oh, don't touch me, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. So if you touch him, you're going to make yourself unclean too. But that's not what happens here. Jesus touches the leper saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy is cleansed. The leper's uncleanness doesn't defile Jesus. Rather, Jesus' power and purity and perfection drives out the illness and makes him clean. I mean, my friends, this is, this is power. Not just to say you can be cleansed, but to drive it out with just a touch. Jesus creates purity. Jesus creates holiness by his power. After all, didn't Malachi prophesy that the Christ would come like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap? What does that mean? It means that the the Lord comes with a purifying power and heat and cleansing agent. I mean, He comes to cleanse and purify. That's part of His mission. One touch from Jesus and sin and impurity are banished instantly. We have to see this. And this man, if you think about it, probably had not been touched by another person in years Luke records that this this man had leprosy all throughout his entire body, which means it had been there for a long time and had gotten worse over the years. So this man hadn't even been touched by another person, never been spoken kindly to, certainly not been the recipient of, of compassion for years and possibly years and years, and finally he's cleansed and restored to health instantly. Oh, can you see the joy that he must have had? What he must have felt in the moment, the joy of being cleansed, I am pure because Jesus touched me. I don't think you and I can fully comprehend this in the moment. But how would the man have responded? I don't know about you, but I would have gone dancing through the streets and praising God. And we read about later on, not in this gospel, but other gospels, that's exactly what he does. But Jesus had some instructions for him. Don't just leave and go running around and telling everybody about what I did. He has some instructions. Look at verse 4. After being cleansed, Jesus says to him, See that you tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Mark adds that Jesus sternly warned him not to tell anyone. Don't tell anyone anyone what I just did. And the question is, why not? Ever wondered about that? Why does Jesus tell all these people? It happens more than once. 
Why does Jesus tell them not to go and tell people what he just did? I read a lot of very interesting takes on this verse this week. Several commentators believe that Jesus was trying to to minimize the number of new people coming to him for healing. He was trying to sort of stave off the crowd. In fact, I believe it's in Luke's gospel, the the end verse after this this, uh, account is concluded, it says that the crowds came to him and he had to actually flee away to the mountains to go and pray. And so Jesus was always kind of navigating the crowds. They would come to him in droves. He'd spend all day with them teaching and healing and praying over them and doing all these things. And then he would get so exhausted he would have to escape and leave. And hence why he's sleeping on boats during storms. I mean, he was so tired from just an expansive and, and, uh, and vibrant ministry that he was trying to keep the crowds at bay. Now that certainly could be the case. I'm certainly not going to discount that observation. But I tend to think that there's another issue at play here. Notice what Jesus tells the man to do. He doesn't tell him, look, don't tell anybody because I I got a busy schedule ahead of me today. I just can't do any more. He doesn't do that. Rather, he says, I want you to go directly to the priest and present the offering. It's not just a matter of mitigating crowds. He goes, oh, no, no, you. Don't tell anybody else. I want you to go right now to the priest. And present the offering. Why does he tell him to do that? Well, because it is in complete obedience to the law. To the law. Leviticus 14.2 states, In the day of the leper's cleansing, he shall be brought to the priest for examination. So the very day, don't go running around town for the next couple days and talk to all your friends. I want you right now, today, this moment, to do exactly what the Bible says and go to the priest immediately. Because once they can thoroughly examine him, they can officially pronounce him clean and make the announcement before all the people. That's Leviticus 14.11. They have to make this grand announcement that this man has been cleansed. And if the man doesn't contact anybody else and there's no other explanation for why he might have been healed, if he goes right from Jesus to the priest immediately, and they pronounce him cleansed, they're going to ask him the question, How did you get cleansed from this? And what's he going to say? Jesus of Nazareth. Now they had heard his name by this point. They would have heard a lot. And now there would be no other explanation, no other reasoning. And if this man was able to give testimony, the priest would have no choice, listen to this, but to certify Jesus' miracle into official public record. Now there's going to be an official pronouncement. Jesus healed this man and we can bear witness to it. It officially verifies what he's doing in their eyes. And because isn't that his motive? Look at the last part of the phrase here. When he tells him to go and present himself cleansed, he says, as a testimony to them. As a testimony to them. Who's the them? The scribes and Pharisees and the priests and the whole Sanhedrin. And the question is, well, a testimony of what? The testimony that Jesus is the healer and redeemer of Israel. He's it. He's the one they've been waiting for. See, that's why he always performs these miraculous signs and wonders. Again, what's the the point of signs and wonders? And I like to tell people, remind them, a sign is always for a sign. It points to something. Signs weren't just done just to put on divine fireworks. 
They were always done for a very specific purpose and assigned a point to a greater reality. That's why Jesus is always performing these signs and wonders, not simply to bless people or display his power, but rather to authenticate his own ministry, which is why he also gives that ability to his disciples, the apostles as well, to authenticate their ministry and subsequently the scriptures. In fact, this is to authenticate that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. John 5.36, Jesus answers the Jews and he says, The works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. I perform signs, I perform miracles, so that even if no one else gives testimony, even if there's no other evidence at all, that you would at least know that I am who I say I am, coming from the Father as the Son of God to redeem Israel, I am who I say I am because of the works. In fact, he says, if you don't believe me, at least believe the works. At least believe the power you see with your own two eyes. I mean, certainly you have to recognize that. But that's his argument. He's not just some clever rabbi. He's not just some parlor trick miracle worker. No, he comes with all the power of heaven to exert creative dominance over the creation, to minister to the sick and to the lowly, to reconcile sinners to himself by his own sacrifice and death. He provides the sacrifice that makes us clean. He is the fulfillment of all of Leviticus. That he is the saving agent, the cleansing agent, the refiner's fire, the fuller's soap, He is the one who gives us life and cleansing by the power of his death, burial, and resurrection. How does this apply to us today? Because that's always, we study the text, we read the text, we seek to understand what it is saying. What does it mean? Where do do we fit into all of this? Because Jesus isn't walking the earth right now cleansing lepers. There are people in this world who are sick and are dying. There is disease. There is infirmity. It's everywhere, isn't it? It seems like every time you turn around, there's some new thing that can kill you. It's terrible. So it's everywhere. We are living in the result of the curse of the fall every day of our lives. And certainly we can affirm that God does heal people, even today, according to his own will. And there are cases all the time of people who the doctors can't explain why they're suddenly better. And so they just chalk it up to, well, it's an act of God or something. They don't know what it is. God can exert his power. However, church history bears witness to the fact that God has not given healing ministries to men as normative practices. All of church history bears witness to that. And so what does this teach us about Jesus? Well, it is implicit in the text that man's greatest need is not to be healed from leprosy, That's the smaller need. The greatest need that we have is to be cleansed from sin. Sin is spiritual leprosy. And that goes for us certainly. All of us, again, are spiritual lepers apart from Christ. The Bible says that we are dead and rotting on the inside because of our sin and uncleanness. But Christ, my friends, can cleanse us. He cleanses But I want to apply this even further. I want to go even further here. Because I think there's a bit more for us as well. Many of us, and I would argue possibly even all of us, we come to Jesus 
with some sort of defilement. Whatever your past is, I don't, I don't know what all of you have come from, what you have struggled with, the things that you've never told anybody. I don't know all of it. I don't pretend to. Many of those things are between you and God. But maybe you came to Christ addicted to drugs or alcohol, and you feel like those are stigmas on you that just won't leave. Maybe you came from a life of sexual sin, that you were an adulterer or you engaged in fornication or were addicted to pornography or whatever it may be. And no matter how spiritual you get, no matter how many times you go to church, you just cannot shake the feeling that you're somehow damaged goods because of your life of uncleanness. Along those lines, maybe you have been divorced. Maybe you have another spouse or several spouses in your previous life. And you've struggled not to feel like an outcast even in the church. That somehow that you have this scarlet letter on your chest that says, I've got a past. Maybe you've had an abortion. And although maybe you've confessed that sin and you should. And taking taking that to the Lord, maybe you've reconciled that with God. But you just can't help but feel totally wrecked by what you've done. Maybe there are even physical effects of your former life of sin. Many people come to Christ and they're, they're battling physical infirmities, a damaged liver, STDs, mental trauma, even bodily mutilation. There are those who are coming out of sexual lifestyles that have mutilated their bodies and come to Christ and they don't know what to go, what's going on with their own body. Maybe you're living with the constant reminder that you have sinned against God And it has taken its toll on you. Let me encourage you with this passage of scripture. Come to Jesus. Come like this cursed leper. On your face. Humble before God. Ask him to forgive you. And my friends, go further. Ask him to cleanse you. Because the Bible teaches the heart of Jesus. He has compassion on those who need it the most. Jesus is willing. When you ask him, Lord, please cleanse me. I've got all this stuff, all this garbage from my former life apart from you. And it's, it's nagging me, it's killing me. Cleanse me. He is willing to cleanse you. To forgive you of your sins. And also not to hold that record against you. See, here's a device of Satan. I want you to pay attention to this. Satan loves to stick your nose back in the sins that have already been forgiven by Jesus. He's a master of it. Something you've done in your former life, you confess it, you find forgiveness, you feel restored, you know you've been restored because of the promises of God, and yet down the road at a certain point you say, wow, I can't can't believe I did that. Man, why did I do that? And you begin to go down this path. And next thing you know, you're doubting your own forgiveness. You're doubting your own salvation. That's exactly what Satan wants. To hijack you into believing that you're not forgiven. Even though you've earnestly sought the Lord. Don't give him an inch. I'm not saying don't be repentant, because you must be. But if you have been forgiven, and even if you've sought forgiveness from somebody else and they have given you forgiveness... Don't go back like a dog to its vomit and live in your own shame before. Don't do that. If Christ is willing to cleanse you, 
be cleansed. You understand what I'm saying? He has genuine, real cleansing, real forgiveness. And one touch from Jesus can cleanse you from the most grotesque defilement. If you're in Christ, you are no longer who you used to be. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we are new creations. New creations in Christ. The old things have passed away. Paul says they're gone. What you were before Jesus came into your life and changed you, what you used to be, that's gone. I still look like the old Nate, but that's not who I am. I'm a servant and a bond slave of God now in Christ Jesus. And if you're in Christ, so are you. So your former life is not your life now. Now, my friends, you will struggle with the vestiges of that. You will feel old patterns, old sin thoughts will come back in your mind. You're going to say, what is that doing here? That's, that's dead. What are you doing? And you quickly, you dispense of it. You confess that again. You say, Lord, remove that from me. Confess and be forgiven and move ahead. And while there may be in your life physical scars, maybe there are things that have damaged you that you'll never be rid of in this life, there are going to be consequences You can be cleansed from all spiritual defilement. We do not have to live under the weight and the shame of confessed sin. Make sense? And I would even go a step further. If you have sinned against God and have never confessed it, please don't let this bear down on you. It doesn't have to. Go to God and prostrate yourself, even spiritually in your mind and your heart, before Him and ask Him, Forgive me. Forgive me for what I've done. I know you can cleanse me if you're willing. And the Bible teaches he is willing. My friends, in the body of Christ, there are no outcasts. In the body of Christ, there are no spiritual lepers. Not a one of you. No one wears a scarlet letter here in this church. If you've been redeemed by Christ then you are acceptable in Christ. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 7.1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. What does that mean? Again, if you have been cleansed by Christ, be cleansed. Live in light of that. Don't go back to your defilement. Don't go back and, and live and wear the marks of your old life. If you've been redeemed, then my friends, live as redeemed people. Because Christ is able and He is willing. And how does He redeem us? Once again, He gives His life as a ransom for us. He takes on, even though He Himself, as truly God and truly man, mysterious as that may be, the God-man Himself Perfect, sinless, flawless, and perfectly pure. He takes on our defilement. He takes on our sins and transgressions and bears them on His own body. And when He goes to the cross and He's forsaken, it's as if He can hear the refrain in His own ears, unclean, unclean. And He dies a sinner's leper's death on that cross. And the punishment and the penalty of all that sin dies with Him. 
And then by the work of His resurrection, and powerful resurrection, new life can be given. And so where do you and I fit in? Turn from your sins. And trust in Jesus who died on the cross to save you. And what happens is that God does not count your sins against you any longer. He's placed them on Jesus. But then He takes the purity and the cleansing and the righteousness of Christ and wraps you around it like a garment and justifies you and declares you righteous and cleansed in His sight. You and I come to Jesus with a clean slate cleansed in Christ. That only happens because He went to the cross and paid for us. My friends, if you do not know Jesus, don't wait another day. Don't wait until Easter to to get saved. Nothing like that. Come to Christ now. Because I don't know if you or I even have tomorrow. Come to Jesus now. Turn from your sins. Turn from the shame of your old life. Come to Christ. He is willing to cleanse you and to save you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to You that You are a God so powerful and so holy, so transcendent, so pure, that by Your own prerogative, You don't have to associate with any of us. You don't have to extend compassion and loving kindness, but yet You do. You do because Your heart is so loving and so dear and kind. Your loving kindness goes all the way to the heavens. And so You have extended Yourself in grace and in mercy to those who are sick and lowly and who need You. Those who have no hope without You, which is us. Lord, if I were left to my own devices... I would rot in my sin. And I know from Scripture's teaching that so would every other person in this room as well. That the only way that we have life and restoration is in the blood of Christ. And so thank you for giving yourself up to cleanse us from every form of defilement, flesh and spirit, that you present us purified and cleansed as a bride on the wedding day. You present us before heaven, before the Father, in all purity and in all righteousness, because you delight to do so. Thank you for such grace and such loving kindness. Help us never to take that for granted, but rather to entreat you as this this leper who has been cleansed. Help us, Lord, to be humble before you and to love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.